Beloved congregation, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles again to Genesis chapter 9. I'd like to read verse 21 and 22. Genesis 21, Genesis chapter 9, verse 21 and 22. Then Noah drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Dear congregation, we come this afternoon to this strange and maybe uncomfortable story about righteous Noah falling into grave sin. My question as we start is, why is this in the Bible? And why should we bother lingering on this shameful episode in Noah's life? Because notice, God didn't need to include this in the Bible. If you look at verse 18 and 19, it speaks of Noah's sons. And that would have smoothly transitioned into chapter 10, verse 1, which again speaks of Noah's sons. But instead of making that smooth, easy transition, the Lord calls Moses to insert between these two passages of Noah's sons, he calls Moses to insert this passage on Noah's sins. And so God goes out of his way, you might say, to put this here in the text. It's a true story. Yet God wants us to know this story because, as, of all, as with the case with all of Scripture, it's profitable for us. All of Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for us. And so this story, then, is meant to rebuke us, to correct us, and ultimately to transform us into the image of Christ. That's the Lord's purpose with this. And if we're tempted to skip over a story like this, it might very well reveal a problem with our understanding of the Christian and the Christian church. Maybe our view of the Christian is that they're all cleaned up now that they've been saved, and so they are 100% sin-free. Or maybe our view of the Christian community is that it's a sanitized place where sin doesn't exist. In congregation, this passage tells us that's a dream, that's a fairy tale, it's a fiction, it's a facade. And so Christ, by His Spirit, wants to use the sharp sword of His Word, the story of Noah and his sin, to pop that bubble of delusion and to truly deliver us from our sin and to deliver us from superficial views of the Christian and of the Christian community. In His kindness, the Lord wants to cut open our hearts with this painful story of Noah. And He does this because He wants to renew our minds. He wants us to learn to hate our sin and to fight against our sin and so that we might also learn to be a community that knows how to rightly respond to the sins of others. That's what we're going to see this afternoon with the Lord's help. Our title is Noah's Drunkenness. Noah's Drunkenness. We have two points 
And in the first point, we're looking at the grievous sin of Noah under the words drunk and naked. Maybe that's uncomfortable to write down if you're keeping notes. Drunk and naked, and yet that's the shocking reality of Noah here. We can't gloss over it. He is drunk and he is naked. How did he get here? Let's retrace his steps. Look with me at verse 20. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. And this here links us with what has come before. Noah, uh, children, you remember the story of Noah? He has just survived the flood. What a traumatic event that was. And then, in God's grace, though, he saved Noah and his family and the animals, kept them safe on the ark. And now Noah has exited the ark. And after he left the ark, God came to him and assured him of his covenant of preservation. And he gave him the rainbow to speak of God's faithfulness. And now here, as we come to our text, some time has passed. We know this because Noah's children have had children. Um, When they went on the ark, it was just Noah, his wife, their sons, and uh, their wives. But now Noah's children have children. Ham, notice, is called the father of Canaan. And if you go to Genesis 10, the next chapter, it indicates that Canaan is probably the fourth son of Ham. And so some time has passed here. And so as we come to this text, we find Noah at this stage of life in relative peace and comfort. I mean, just think about his life. He's walked that difficult path of obedience. He's built the ark that took a hundred years And he did so in the face of public opposition, public ridicule, and yet Noah labored on. Following that, he survived the traumatic events of the flood, and he spent long months on board that ark. And yet now, look at Noah. He's entered a stage of peace and prosperity, and already, congregation, there's an application here for us. Because sometimes the hardest temptations come in times of prosperity, The biggest failures in our life might not happen when the battle is fiercest, but when all seems calm. Uh, Here's the reality we need to contend with. Temptation never takes a vacation. We might take a faithful stand on an important pressurized issue and then in our private life give in to the subtle pressures of sinful pleasure. That's Noah here. And so this is a reminder for us to remain spiritually vigilant. We must be guarding our hearts. Uh, This is true every single day of the Christian life. Uh, Not, of course, left to ourselves, but by drawing strength from God in Christ, by the power of His Spirit, looking forward to Christ's second coming or our death when we go to be with Him. That's when the battle's over. Until then, we must be on guard. Notice our text tells us Noah began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard, and this is, this is very good. This is not the sin of Noah. Uh, Noah here is fulfilling the creation mandate that God gave him and all of us in him. Uh, he went to work in God's world, and this was good. Uh, Noah is a productive man. He's cultivating the earth. He's tilling the ground. He's working the soil. He's planting the vine. He's growing the grapes. All of this is good. It's honorable. God loves work. It's his gift to us. This is God-glorifying. It's not a waste of time. Noah is productive. He's using his gifts. No sin here. This is good. Verse 21, then he drank of the wine. Still good. 
Nothing wrong here. Noah is enjoying God's gift, the fruit of his labors. And of course, uh, some Christians would forbid, forbid wine outright, but that's not what we find in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 27, 28 tells us wine is seen as a blessing from God. Even more clearly, Psalm 104, verse 15, God gives us wine that makes glad the heart of man in a context of receiving God's gifts with joy. In the New Testament, of course, Jesus at the wedding feast doesn't leave them with water. He thinks wine is fitting for that joyous celebration, and he makes wine. And at the institution of the Lord's Supper, at the Passover feast, the first Lord's Supper, Jesus promises, the next time I will drink of the vine is with you in, the, in my Father's kingdom. And so, Christian, you have, at least on, Jesus tells us, we have wine in our future in the new heavens and the new earth. Wine is not the problem in and of itself. It's a good gift that can be received with thanksgiving. The sin, of course, comes in the next words. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk. That's the problem. Noah wasn't rightly enjoying God's gifts. He was abusing God's gifts. And congregation, we will get to the specific application of drunkenness in a moment. But before we get there... We need to realize that we all fall in a variety of ways in terms of the general principle here of abusing God's good gifts. We all fall in this general principle. Uh, Let's think for a moment. What are God's gifts for? There's at least two reasons why God gives us good gifts. Number one, he gives us his gifts so we might rejoice more in him. His gifts come down from heaven, from the Father of lights, James 1.17, so that we might then with gratitude receive them and, and trace the gifts back to the source, back to God, and rejoice more in Him. That's one reason. The second reason is not only that we might rejoice in God, but that we might then be refreshed for our callings. Another way to say it, God gives us gifts so that we might glorify Him with thanksgiving and that we might then do more good in service to our neighbors. Think about the gift of exercise or or sports, for example. Uh, Hockey, soccer, baseball, whatever your sport is, these these are good. These are gifts, good gifts. Exercise is good. Uh, You can play and enjoy these things in such a way that actually leads you to rejoice in your good creator, your sustainer, and, and you can be refreshed through this exercise so you're better situated to serve your neighbor. Praise God for these good gifts. Yet, congregation, it is so easy to abuse good gifts from God. It's easy for a sport to begin to own us. It becomes our master. It's no longer life-giving, but now it's life-sapping. It starts to interfere in my relationships, my duties to others. It starts to steal communion with Christ. Whatever the gift is in your life that that you at times receive with thanksgiving and for the good of neighbors, think about that gift. Whatever it is, whether it's sports or wine, family or work, hobbies or entertainment, whatever that gift is, if it's hampering your rejoicing in God or hurting your faithfulness in your calling, then you are abusing the gift. When that happens to us, it's now my God It's ruling me. I'm a slave to the wrong master. It's idolatry. It's sin. 
Well, that's the general principle. As I said, we all fall here. And that's Noah here in terms of the good gift of wine. Notice he's gone too far. He's drank too much. And now the text says he's drunk. Now, children, alcohol is, is a strong drink. Uh, that's why it's a drink for adults. Uh, in our country, there are good age limits on purchasing alcohol because we recognize it's a strong drink. It needs to be drunk responsibly. But our text is telling us that even for adults, if they aren't careful, it can cause them to not think straight. They can become drunk. That's Noah. His mental capacities were impaired. He's gone beyond a God-glorifying limit, and the text tells us he's drunk. And congregation, we do need to linger here for a minute. In our circles, I think most of us probably celebrate our freedoms with alcohol. I mean by that, we come to the Bible and we see there's a good place, there's an appropriate place for wine or beer or drinks like that. And so maybe we begin to think, well, we're not like those other Christians, you know, who come to the Bible, who they just outright forbid beer or wine, and we, come on, how can you be so foolish to think like that? And yet, as we maybe boast in our right biblical freedom, the question is, have you started to slip into slavery? We read Galatians 5, verse 13, have you been using your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh? And so, congregation, we need to search ourselves. Have you been going too far with alcohol? Have you been dulling your God-given senses? Do you have limits? Uh, good limits. Now, there aren't any hard rules here other than to say God clearly says getting drunk is a sin and you need to know yourself, like really know yourself to know your limits. The Apostle Paul hands us principles for how to handle good gifts in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Uh, listen to this. It's so helpful. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Do you ever think that way? Do you ever ask yourself this about specific things in your life? Right now, we're zeroing in on alcohol. And so do you ever ask this, if you enjoy alcohol, do you ever say, is this alcohol helpful for my joy in Christ and my service of my neighbor? Paul would say, yes, it might be lawful, but is it helpful? Do you test yourself in this way? Do you ask yourself, am I being brought under the power of alcohol? If I don't ask these questions, then I could probably just about guarantee that I am. And if I am, it's no longer lawful because it's no longer helping you live the Christian life to the glory of God. Young people in particular, the enticements are all around us. Uh, society in general today is okay with drunkenness. It's pushed in music, in movies. But let's not be naive. Uh, the church as well can entice us. Other church-going people might very well be encouraging you right now, enticing you right now, saying, come on, live a little, come to the party, it's fun, it's thrilling, this is where life is found, come, let's go get drunk, this, this is it. Well, it can feel fu uh, fun, it can, 
Sinful pleasures are called sinful pleasures for a reason. The pleasures are real. That's the danger of sin. Of course, the release feels good, but the party always ends. It's fun until it's not fun, and you realize how you've wasted your days, you've squandered God's gifts, and you've turned them against him. Listen to Proverbs 23, verse 29. It speaks of the danger of drunkenness. Proverbs 23, verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Answer, those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper. They're speaking of the abuse of a good gift. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. You see, drunkenness so often leads to further sin. We'll see that in Noah's life. Proverbs continues, Yes, you'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, or like one who lies at the top of the mast. Do you see the picture? Uh, the drunken person is the person who has gone out of their mind. They're, they're not thinking straight. And so, like the sailor who climbs up to the top of the mast in the midst of a storm, decides, hey, this is a good place to fall asleep. No one in their right mind's thinking that. This is the danger of drunkenness. They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They've beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I wake that I may seek another drink? Congregation, alcohol is a good gift. But it is dangerous due to our hearts. We look for escapes from stress, escapes from reality. We want comfort. We want joy. And alcohol is one of the most popular substitutes then for God. It's intoxicating. It seems to offer these things. Listen to Paul, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And notice the contrast. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but... And now how would you contrast that? Don't be drunk. And, and what's the positive behavior then that we should pursue? What's the, the opposite, the flip side of the coin? Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with wine attempts to offer happiness and it leads to emptiness. It leads to disappointment. It leads to frustration. But being filled with the Spirit, it actually satisfies what you're going after. Being filled with the Spirit leads to the truly satisfying fruit of the Spirit being born in your life. And think about those fruit. Uh, we're tempted to turn to the bottle because I want love or because I want to drown out the fact that I don't have any love. Or I want joy or the fact I don't have any joy. Or I want peace or the fact I don't have any peace. And so alcohol's enslaving me. What can the Spirit give you? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is never the fruit of of drunkenness. That is the beautiful fruit of the Spirit. 
And what a difference to what Noah is experiencing here. Our text says he's drunk. And you see verse 21, he became uncovered in his tent. God wants us to see the picture. Righteous Noah stumbling into his tent. Not thinking straight, removes his clothes. Yes, he's in a private place, he's in his own tent. And yet, this is revealing how alcohol or anything that impairs our mind leads us to commit foolish actions. Noah is drunk and Noah is naked. He's passed out in his tent, uncovered. Righteous Noah, faithful Noah, the one who stood alone in his generation to obey the Lord. That Noah, look at him now. Why does God give us this revelation? It's certainly not an approval of this type of behavior, not at all. God gives it to us for this reason. To tell us that he is the type of saving God that rescues such appalling sinners like this. That's why this is here. Congregation, we can read the Bible and think it's about the good people and the bad people and God helps the good people. Look at Noah, he's doing well because he did some good stuff. And therefore we make the application, I must be a good person if I want God's help. And God gives us the story of Noah's drunkenness to say, no, that's not how it works. Uh, There's only one good person, it's Jesus Christ. He's come to rescue bad people, to forgive them, and yes, then to change them. To truly change them, to progressively start to change them. Are you appalled at Noah's sin in this text? I hope so. We should be. But friend, are you appalled at yourself? At your heart, at what you've done in the past, at what you're capable of in the present and in the future? We better be. If we know ourselves at all, we should be appalled with our sin. We should be humbled by it. But then we need to see that God is the God of Noah. That means he's the God of sinners. He is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in mercy. Psalm 103, we sing this every Lord's Supper, or at least we say it every Lord's Supper. It's in the form, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Praise God. Yes, God is the just God of Noah, who judges sin. You missed that part of the series. That's the flood. God is frightening in His justice. But the just God who judges sin is the just God who justifies sinners because he has judged sin in himself, in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the message of Scripture. This is the gospel that's radiating through this text as we see the sins of Noah. I just think with me of 1 John 1, verse 8. It states it so succinctly. If we say that we have no sin, and maybe that's how you came to church this afternoon. I'm doing pretty good. I dressed up. I look pretty good, cleaned on the outside. I have no sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's why this text is here. To remove the blinders off our own eyes so that we might see our sin But then there's the next verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And don't you love that? God, yes, he is faithful. We love the faithfulness of God, but we ought to love the justice of God. 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What John is trying to tell us is that as we go to the cross, we see God judging real sin in his own son. He is just. He takes sin seriously. It will be judged. Either you will bear it yourself if you cover it up, act like you're not a sinner, don't confess it. But there's another way. Go to the cross. God is just. And you see him judging sin on himself. On his own dear son. And, and he's judging real sin. I mean like really grievous sin. Sins like Noah. The ones he's committed. And because God is just, he will not judge that same sin twice. Oh Christian, that is the great hope of the gospel. He will not, he cannot, because he is just, judge the same sin twice. The one that you have confessed, the ones that you're fighting against and turning against, he will not judge them again on you. The story of Noah here is telling us if we confess our sins, you will be 100% forgiven. And then when you're forgiven of cosmic crimes like this, it changes you. Oh, it really starts to change you. The Spirit starts to change your attitude towards sin and sinners. Uh, The Spirit's work in us is that now we start to hate sin. We fight over it. We grieve over it. We want to put it to death. But then also the Spirit changes us so that we want to help fellow sinners. And that's where we want to move in our second and last point. Here we're asking the question, how should we respond to the sin of others? And we, again, we have two words. Here they are, exposed and covered. Exposed and covered. Now, congregation, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of Noah's sons. Here we are, and the sin of our father is staring us right in the face. And the question is, well, how are you going to respond? I mean, imagine this was going on in your family or your church family. What should you do? How should you respond? God puts us in community. He's given us this church family, and we've been saying every true Christian is still marred by sin. And so this is a very relevant question for all of us. Uh, We all still deal with sin to varying degrees, maybe not to the dire extent of Noah here, but sin remains in our life and we will then see sin in others and others will sin against us. That's just about guaranteed if we're living in community. And so this is a very relevant question. How are we going to respond to the sins of others? The only way to respond well is if you yourself are united to Christ by faith. And if you are living in the conscious awareness of your Noah-like tendencies to vile sins and the sheer overwhelming grace that you have received, Christian, that is the only way you will respond well to the sins of others. That's the starting point. And so as a Christian, I need to apply the gospel every day to myself, and and this is why I need to start here. This is why God calls us to church every week to hear things like this, to remind us, 
Uh, We are real sinners. There's a real Savior, and we have received real grace if you are in Christ. If you aren't living conscious of your sin and clinging to your Savior, you will not respond well to the sins of others. It is guaranteed. And from that starting point, then, what should you do? Notice our text. We find two responses to Noah's sins. Uh, First, we see Ham. He sees the sin, and he wants to spread the sin to expose it. And then we see Shem and Japheth who seek to cover the sin. And from this, we can draw out two clear biblical principles that need to be wisely and carefully applied in the life of the church. And let's just admit out front, this is challenging. And every situation is unique and different, and yet these principles remain. And so let me try to flesh them out for you. First, there's the exposing of sin, exposing sin. And to be clear, there is a right and a wrong way to expose the sins of others. And Ham is exhibit A of what not to do if you're trying to expose the sins of others. He's telling us exactly how not to do this. So you see verse 22? And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Here is a clear example of how not to expose the sin of others. Notice Ham's problem is that he's motivated by hatred towards his father as he exposes his sin. We know this because Ham's sin is that he's dishonoring his father. Uh, His goal here is to make Noah a public spectacle. Uh, He sees Noah's nakedness, and the word there is not that he sees it and turns away, but he sees it and he stares. He revels in the sins of this other person. And then he thought, look at this old man, what a fool. And so he goes to seek to destroy his reputation, to spread division in the family. And he goes to the brothers outside and says, come on in, let's look at this this man caught in his sin. There's no compassion on his sinning father, no love for the sinner, let's just make a mockery of him. In congregation, this is so easy to do in the church. We see someone sin, and we gossip about it. That's how not to expose sin. Ham shows us that there's a way to talk about someone's sin that is hate-filled. It seeks to hurt one's reputation. It seeks to divide the person from the community. This is, we can say, satanic It's an exposing of sin that seeks to destroy. That's the key to the wrong way of exposing sin. Am I seeking to destroy this person? And that's exactly what Satan does. He will expose someone's sin to them in order to lead them to despair. Christian, isn't that right? This is what Satan does in your life. He's the accuser of the brethren. Why does he do this? Why does he bring your failures to the light? So you might be cured? No, no, no. So you might be crushed. He wants to kill your faith. He wants to destroy your soul. And we take on Satan-like characteristics when we seek to do this to others. To expose sin in order to destroy them. That's the wrong way to expose sin. But congregation, we must say, there is a right and necessary way to expose sin that's vital to Christian community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 
uh, he wrote a classic work on Christian fellowship called Life Together. And there he's showing us how confession and exposure of sin is vital for the health of the Christian church and for every Christian. And, And listen to this warning he gives. He writes this, the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner, so everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not to be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. Can you imagine that there might be a sinner here today? And so we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. Bonhoeffer writes, the fact is we are sinners. Galatians 6 verse 1, what we read, tells us a much better way. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted And so you see what Paul is saying? This is a call for every Christian to, first of all, be guarding their own heart and living in step with the Spirit. He says, you who are spiritual. That means those in the context here, those living in step with the Spirit, those who are filled with the Spirit, those who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Such a person is humble enough to recognize, I can easily be ensnared in sin. Because they know themselves. But notice they don't just stay there. They have a loving concern for their brother and they see one overtaken in trespass and they don't go and try to destroy that person. Notice the opposite. They seek to restore, to restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness. Congregation, practically speaking, that means there are times where we need to have that loving yet hard conversation with a brother or a sister But we do so in such a way where we try to understand the other person, try to help them see the the grievousness of their sin and then bring gospel remedies to them so that they might be restored. And so here's a question we can ask ourselves before we seek to expose sin, and it's this. Am I exposing this sin in a way that will ruin or restore this person? Gossip ruins, coming in guns blazing, that's probably going to ruin, but with the spirit of gentleness aiming at restoring, that's beautiful. Proverbs 28, verse 13, he who covers his sin will not prosper. Whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And so congregation, as a church family, we want to recognize we are sinners and we want to, to learn That if we cover our sins inappropriately, we will not prosper. That's what Proverbs 28 is telling us. But it's as we confess our sins and forsake our sins that we find mercy. Now, of course, there's always the error of the opposite extreme. This, of course, doesn't mean putting out all of our dirty laundry into the open. Not everyone needs to know about every sin in your life. That's not how the Bible deals with sin. Uh, We don't need to necessarily come out with a sin and, and just show it off, as it were. No, but this does mean that we will not experience the true sweetness of Christian fellowship until we've learned to confess our sins to one another. If we've sinned against someone... 
Sweet fellowship is on the other side of confessing our sin, of owning our sin to that brother or sister. If we are caught in sin today, go to a trusted brother or sister, ask them for help, seek to be restored. All of this, of course, highlights the necessity of appropriate church discipline. What is church discipline but Christ's tool of restoration? First of all, yes, restoration of the repentant sinner to God, but then restoration of the repentant sinner to the body of Christ. And yes, that means it's disappointing, of course, when there's no repentance, and there's, there's a possibility of that. And then there's the necessity that the sin must be made more public, and sometimes there's a necessity of excommunication for the glory of Christ, for the purity of the church. But the goal of church discipline is always the same, always aiming at restoration in a way that tends to the glory of God. So private, loving confrontation is a healthy part of being a church family. There's one other thing to see here, and that is not only exposing sin, but covering sin. Covering sin. And again, there's a wrong covering and there's a right covering of sin. We can wrongly cover up sin because we don't want to confront sin. Uh, This cover-up often breeds more sin as it just lives under the rock, lives in the dark. Uh, This is a cover-up that leads to hurting more people. Uh, There's abuse going on, and I think I just need to cover this up. And as I do so, there's, there's more victims left in the wake of the violent person because I'm covering up the sin. That's wrong. God hates that. Don't cover that up. Sometimes covering up just leads to further breakdown in a relationship with a person. They've sinned grievously against me, and so there might be an appropriate time then to say, we need to talk about this. Or sometimes covering up sin leads to further dishonoring of God, which then, of course, is not the right option. That's not what we're talking about here. Notice Shem and Japheth, they cover up sin in the right way. They don't participate in Ham's mockery of sin. Instead, verse 23 But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away. They did not see their father's nakedness. Notice how many times the language is used here to say they're not participating in rejoicing in the darkness. They're turning their face away. They don't want to see it. These sons were motivated by love and by showing love to their father by covering his sin. And the Bible is clear. Love does this in the right way. Love appropriately will seek to overlook sin as much as possible. Love seeks to look beyond sin. Love seeks to guard someone's reputation where possible. Proverbs 19, verse 11, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Ephesians 4, verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bear with one another in love. Maybe most clearly, 1 Peter 4, verse 8, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. This here reminds us that if we are prone to confront sin, which is a necessary place of doing that, but if we are prone to confront sin, this serves as a check on my heart. Because the Christian has the ability and the opportunity to say that this is a sin against me that love can cover. Uh, It's an offense against me, but out of love, I'm choosing to cover it. Uh, What freedom the Lord gives us. 
The Christian doesn't need to respond to every time their cup gets bumped, as it's often been said. We can overlook a fault like God overlooks our faults. And if needing to confront the sin, we keep the circle as small as possible out of a desire to protect the other's reputation, which is the principle of Matthew 18. In this case, notice Shem and Japheth, they beautifully cover Noah's sin to protect his honor, but notice And this is important, they didn't cover up his sin. Here's what I mean. What would covering up his sin look like in this moment? It would look like just walking by Noah's tent and leaving him in his nakedness. Turning a blind eye, acting like there's nothing wrong with their father's actions. Notice they don't do that. Shem and Japheth, they love Noah enough to go in and carefully cover him with a garment, and that action was a correction to their father in the spirit of gentleness. Because notice, after Noah wakes up from his stupor, he recognizes there are those who have loved him and there's those who have hated him. Ham has hated him by exposing his sin in a destructive way, but Shem and Japheth have loved him by gently correcting him. And so you see, as he wakes up, now he's covered by a garment. He knows someone else knows about my sin, but they haven't sought to destroy me. They've sought to deal gently with me. And look at how he responds. You see, the Spirit worked humility in the repentance. Verse 26, he's able to say this, Blessed be the God of Shem. Isn't that striking? Noah recognized that by grace, Shem was reflecting his God of grace in the face of his own shameful sin. And dear church, this is our calling to one another. We must learn how to expose sin in a loving way and cover sin in a loving way with the Spirit's help. This is the gospel way, all for the restoration of sinners and for the glory of our great Savior. And so may God more and more Help us to be wise and to make us the kind of people who experience then the sweet fellowship that comes through living life together in this gospel way where we are conscious of our own sinfulness and yet rejoicing in the fullness of grace that we have received in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, the gospel is so beautiful to hear. It is glad tidings to the sinner's ears. And it's glad tidings to the sufferer's ears. For Lord, you are a God who cares deeply about sin and vengeance is yours and you will one day repay. And so Lord... Every crime will be punished, and no victim's cause will go unheard. And so, Lord, if we are suffering at the hands of another, help us to find a ray of comfort in that. But, Lord, for each of us as sinners, there is forgiveness. And what glad tidings that is then, that Christ has come not for okay people who can help themselves, but for real sinners like Noah and like us, to truly save sinners, to forgive us, 
and to free us from our sin. And so, Lord Jesus, help us to rejoice in you and give us more of your spirit that we might, if we are locked in the bondage of addiction or other sin of abusing your gifts, free us, O Lord, by your almighty power and help us to, to be willing to go get the help that we need, to be humble enough to seek the help of counselors and brothers and sisters. And Lord, for all of us, help us to be a church family that learns how to wisely apply the principles of your word to, con- to confess sin, to confront sin in a loving way, but then also to cover sin in love, all for the glory of your name. Lord, we need wisdom. Grant it to us. You are the giver of it. Forgive us of our sins in this worship service. Go with us into this week and help us by your spirit to apply these things to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Close, or excuse me, we have the Apostles' Creed. We'd like to unite ourselves with the church of all ages and all places. I believe we do this standing. We'll stand to confess our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. Answering the question, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.